Hello and welcome to Type 1's Talk Sport, the podcast hosted by the BDA Sports and Exercise Diabetes Subgroup. Our aim is to make sports and exercise nutrition education more accessible to people living with type 1 diabetes and to all those who support them. During these episodes, we as dietitians will share our expert nutrition knowledge with you and speak to other experts in this field. We will also share inspiring stories from athletes and individuals participating in different sports and activities, exploring how they are navigating their type 1 diabetes alongside everything else. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review, subscribe for upcoming content and follow us on social media. Good morning, Chris. Thank you so much for meeting me today and having a chat on our Type 1 Talk Sports podcast. Really excited to have you on. We'll just get started. I feel like I've known you for years. We met on Twitter. But are you happy to just introduce yourself to people listening to the podcast and tell us a bit more about yourself? My name is Chris Bright. I've been a Type 1 since 1999. So it's 23 years, so I've seen quite a, a lot of change and a lot of developments in the care that I've received with the condition in that time. But also been through, if you like, a bit of a, a career or a part-time career in wanting to, to do as best as I could in, in football and futsal, alongside obviously the challenges that balancing that with living with type 1 has brought. So yeah, diagnosed quite a long time now and yeah, utilised what I've been doing in sport to then try and help people as well so uh, I founded the diabetes football community in 2017 to try and give something back and try and help others that might be finding it challenging or difficult living with a condition whilst being passionate about football and sport and that's been a major part of my life in the last six years it's just been six years since we started in it's come uh, such a long way in that time and the things that we're doing now I, I could never have dreamt of and and also then in my my day to day I work for JDRF as well so I work for the leading type 1 diabetes charity in the United Kingdom essentially work with community so putting on community events across the nation as well as then looking for organizations and individuals to partner with to try and help people with type 1 as best as we can as a charity as well so my daily life is taken up with type 1 diabetes and also my my working life as well so it's a lot of diabetes in there but I'm very I feel very privileged that I'm able to give back in whichever capacity it is whether it's my personal capacity or whether that's my working one as well oh that's interesting and you said you feel the need to give back so is that because you've had how would you describe your experiences with type 1 growing up how did the diagnosis sort of come about yeah so I think if you going back my diagnosis if you like is I think everyone remembers it really well no matter what age you're at because it's quite a harrowing change in life well I walked into a GP surgery on September the 6th 1999 you remember the date I walked into a surgery a normal kid not many worries I wasn't overly ill either because my grandfather had type 1 the symptoms that were appearing I think my family picked up on relatively quickly-ish I mean I'd probably been having them for maybe a month or two because I was a sporty kid and it was the summer. So I was diagnosed in early September. I think some of it was masked by running around the weather, you know, the need to drink more, the obviously subsequent thing of going to the toilet a bit more, uh, the tired thing running around in the heat. It kind of masked a little bit, I think, of the symptoms. And then all of a sudden, I think the weather shifted and changed early September. All of a sudden, it's it carrying on. And I think that was when the, the need to have a blood test and just get checked 
because of the family history was was apparent and I walked in on that Monday morning and I didn't I didn't know really what to expect but I think you very quickly know that something's wrong when you see so I you very rarely see your parents get upset but when I saw my mum crying I was thinking this is really not good like whatever this is this is not good and yeah I I still hold a lot of emotion attached to diagnosis like it's quite hard to talk about it like I can feel myself feeling a bit tough talking about it now because it was the moment that everything changed like life just changed in that moment so yeah I I saw my mum get upset and then I didn't really know how to react or do anything you ask those kind of key questions like the first one is kind of am I going to die because you don't see your parents when it's about you get that, that upset so that's the first place you go to and then there was a lot of things that happened I was you know I was whisked off to the hospital and things like that and and the question that was living in the eight-year-old version of me at the time was can I still play football I couldn't ask it I don't think I didn't feel like it was the (laughs) I was quite conscious I didn't ask it in the doctor said when something was clearly quite wrong like really worryingly wrong but I I, it was living in my head as an eight-year-old kid who basically just lives for football and you know apart from school would get home and and go straight outside to kick a ball around it was the, the question that I was just waiting to ask and and it came out not too long into that journey in the hospital and someone said yeah you'll be able to play you'll be able to continue to play and I think that was my little my little ray of light that I needed in what was a really tough week I remember being in the hospital for I think it was four days or so I remember being on a drip I remember people coming in to see me in hospital people from my football team popped in close friends yeah and I remember going to the hospital school because it was the first week of school obviously September the 6th I missed all of the first week so it was kind of weird because then when I went back to school it was a whole new year I'd moved class as well because people should at that time people would shuffle classes and move people around and I had no everything shift it was like as an eight-year-old like my whole world had just shifted in a few days like all of my school was different when I went back I had type one when I went back and yeah it was a lot of change for a young eight-year-old to sort of try and take on and yeah hard very hard and then you quickly see the at the time the restriction that it placed on my life 1999 we were dealing with type one in a in a different way to our, how we are in 2023 so I was on mixture insulin which meant that I had to inject at almost the same time every day within a kind of half an hour window. I had to eat food almost at the same time every day to almost, again, a half an hour window to try and ensure that I didn't have any hypos or I didn't put myself in in difficulty because of yeah the way that the medication was working. It, it peaked at different times and you would have to have snacks and things like that. And, and then when you chuck in that fun variable, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about, a sport in a month mixture insulin it was I'm going to say very difficult and I think it hampered my ability at the time for what I was capable of I would some weeks in my games I would be the usual Chris like I could deliver I could do what I wanted to do and then other weeks it was just I was a walking hypo or my levels were too high or and we just with finger prick testing as well you know everyone we're taking for granted CGM almost these days how amazing that is but in 1999 and for most of my my life actually tackling sport and physical activity I'm I was you know for the first five years I was on mixture insulin and finger prick testing now you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about how your body feels to try and tackle sport and physical activity doing working with what what I would call probably some of the most basic tools of like not really like basic like they were just 
just not fit for purpose for tackling sport, in my opinion. The medication and fingerprint testing. When I moved on to basal bolus, you could see that all of a sudden and the, the kind of multiple daily injection stuff, it just changed. It almost instantly changed my consistency as a player, consistency in what I was able to do as a, a person living with type 1, the variability in things. But what didn't compute, and this I held off for a little while because I diagnosed at 8 or 9, I really didn't like injections and I found it difficult and stuck because I, I really was scared of them. I hated them. And when somebody said, Chris, you're going to have to do more injections, I was like, how does this make this better for me? And I was struggling to see how basal bolus was going to make it better. So I probably held off moving a little bit longer than I, in hindsight, you would want to because I just couldn't understand in my head as a teenage, young teenager, why I would want to do more injections in a day and almost showcase type one more. Like I needed to do more injections. People would see more of what the impact was of living with type one. And while on two injections a day, you almost completely hide it. It was, you would be able to inject in the morning before anyone saw you at school and then you'd inject in the evening evening and nobody would see it and then all of a sudden um, you're asking me to go and do injections now in schools so at lunchtime and needing to test more and but what it did do is give me my life back really it did give me all of the flexibility that that life should have in it and I didn't realize that you know I don't think I, I was supposed to I was too young I think to really compute that and it's hard for a 13 14 year old to really get that I think so we got there eventually and it made a huge difference and the first those four first four or five years of living with type one and the time of my life as well was right in terms of the age I was at you know between the ages of pretty much nine when I was diagnosed through to the age of 14 they were on mixture insulin there was a whole lot of why me there was an awful lot of this is really not nice at all and I'm really struggling with it and I'm just so glad that you know pediatric patients now have more access to psychological support because I went through life not having that and I think there was a a 10 year old version of me that really could have done with it and I think there's now I'm just so pleased that healthcare has moved in that direction to help people because that question why me as a child is is massive. Yeah I guess a lot of people with any condition at any age probably ask that question but like you say at nine it's a lot to take on isn't it? I mean it sounds like you had a good team it it sounds like they were almost like oh you need to do that for you for your sport so tell me a bit more about that team like what was that like or you know who was in that team to get that conversation with you yeah big shout out and I name drop for for Di Cluley because she was the pediatrics diabetes specialist nurse and she was in Worcestershire she's been a big part of young people's lives with type 1 for for a very long time and she retired very recently but she's played a big part in so many young people with type 1 their life so she was the person that said yes Chris you can still play football and you can still do this and we'll work with you she was often the person that did the home visits and came out to our house she was the the really big focal point of the team that I really remember the consistent part she was she was always there for my just yeah I just can't remember diabetes clinics when Di wasn't around for years and 
she made it easier when it wasn't easy and she played a big part in encouraging me to try and live life and encouraging me to try and not make sure it got in the way and you know how important football was to me working it out there were some good consultants as well and good dietitians as well that supported in the team uh, from a healthcare perspective but you I think I don't know whether it's a consistent thing but like I always feel that there's one person that stands out sometimes in a team especially maybe in a healthcare team that you just connect with and you just resonate with and Di was that for me and, and she was probably that for it was just the way she was she's a wonderful human being she just made a massive difference to, to me and to I think to so many that's amazing the fact that you're saying that she gave you sort of hope didn't she you can play football like that's still rare even to this date like I've spoken to other people for the podcast that are older than you and sort of recently diagnosed and still hearing oh don't play sport yet you know that sort of thing so it's fantastic to hear that you know so many years ago that was being told so do you think that was what kept you sort of going with the football tell us maybe a bit more about your journey for the football and yeah. how that's grown yeah I mean she yeah the light that you needed when it was really dark around in terms of your mindset and, and all this change and all and the change for a, what was an obviously not a good reason and she helped from the healthcare team definitely I think a massive amount of credit has to go to my parents as well that mindset around Chris we're going to work it out we're going to make it happen we're going to allow you to make we're not going to shy away from it we're going to tackle it head on and you're going to do the things you want to do in life you know so some of these residential trips and things like that at school I would always go on and they'd be like Chris if you want to go you go in and football you're going to go even if the, the condition was causing you problems or challenges at the time we'll work it out you're going to go you're going to play and I mean I alluded to the fact that obviously I found it challenging in those first four or five years but it doesn't mean that I wasn't still being quite successful despite the challenges there I mean I was at the time in my middle school I was captain in the school team we were winning the district title every year so we were winning we was only one year that we didn't win it and we were runner up so I mean we were pretty much the best school team in the in our town we consistently won trophies we did well in the county as well in the region got to finals of that I played for probably the, one of the best Sunday league kids teams if you like in the area again league title after league title runner up second third league playing in the top division in sort of kids football in the area yeah and then sort of playing for district teams as well so representing the town representing county teams when I was about 14 15 and this was I think it got even better as I got to that age of 14 15 when we shifted to Basil Bolas some of the inconsistencies which maybe held me back a little bit started to go away a little as we changed and shifted to this new regime and a more consistent regime with insulin which really was more technically advanced than what I was using before I think so and that was when it started to kick on for me at 15 16 I was in county football teams then I was captain in district teams I was having trials at professional football clubs at 16 never quite getting just over the line with it but always there or thereabouts like kind of always in a conversation of Chris is pretty good at this you know he's not far off we're calling you know moving into professional game but you always wonder whether it was type one and, and and whether sometimes I was held back a little bit by the condition in certain circumstances but also equally maybe not quite good enough as well kind of it's ifs and buts and maybes but I was I was there or thereabouts and then sort of 16 17 started moving into what is a semi-professional youth team again successful semi-professional youth team we won a league got to the first round of the FA Youth Cup playing against professional players and doing well in that represented again the under 18s county team did well in that kind of got to the final of the Midlands counties so we were a really good side then as well and yeah just generally really 
starting to enjoy it then and really getting into my stride, I think, 17, 18, and then 19, go, went to the University of Worcester. So I went off to do my studies, did my sports degree, played in the university's first team there, football, and was being, started to be paid then to play football as well, sort of represented Bromsgrove Rovers, Bromsgrove Sporting, who are what I would you'd say kind of biggish non-league team in the Midlands in terms of fan base and people supporting the club. They get quite a big turnout. So I got the chance to play there for a few years and yeah, kind of transitioning into what is a young adult. Difficult period as well because you're kind of fitting in that whole fitting in piece is, is in there. But I think football always kept me on a path where I didn't stray too far off in terms of the neglecting type one because there's no doubt I, at times I think that teenagers I think there's times we do forget about type one and we try and put it to the back of our mind and we, and we do just let go of type one for a bit and it's very difficult where you've got all this fitted in going on as a as a young adult and I did there's no doubt I did that at times but football really helped me stay not a million miles off the path that I needed to be on because I'd worked out at this point that if my levels were wildly out I wouldn't play as well so I was still in my mind trying to push to play as high as I could you know earn money out of the game whether that was just pocket money Saturday part-time job stuff or even whether it was you know I could play a little bit higher and earn what was a decent salary on a part in a part-time basis or, or more so yeah I kind of worked that out and it was important in the direction that I took in life but those challenges there would later be I guess the inspiration for me for the diabetes football community some of the stuff that I felt I didn't have or didn't need maybe in football so not didn't need didn't have from people within the game of football which I wish I'd had so it was kind of I learned the intervention as I from my younger age if you like from the, those challenges and the, the things that I faced as a young adult teenager young adult which then later into my mid late 20s is when I sort of implemented the, the intervention when I felt I had the skills to do it oh wow well it sounds like yeah football really took your places didn't it and sort of getting like you say about the for young adults I think anyone I've spoken to attack when diabetes is always a year where you just go I've not got diabetes or there's always a year where it just wasn't great it just seems to be that a bit of period so it's interesting and I think it's always possibly during that transition period because there's so much going on you've got like you say you're trying to fit in you want to be normal you've got goals probably tag ones just getting in the way isn't it so no it's interesting you're saying that as well so then how did you get into like when did this start when did the futsal sort of you said 217 but is there a gap before that you know was there anything that led to to you starting that yeah, so I suppose where I am in, in the chronological order of things, you know, I come out of university, I was playing part-time football, so I was playing for non-league teams in the area and I was kind of earning some, basically some pocket money to go out with on as a young adult on a Saturday night. I was basically picking up some money and I was spending it going out with friends and things on a Saturday night and I was happy doing that for a little while and then but at university I'd heard about futsal but I didn't have the opportunity when I went through I'd heard about it being small-sided I'd heard about great players in football having been involved in futsal so people like Neymar and Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo all starting their young careers playing futsal and understanding that the game in its own right was one that I think I could have been suited to and I think that's what I'd hope that I'd have that opportunity in the future so I was playing played for a few different teams non-league I got to about I think it was 23, 24, so a couple of years out of uni. And then somebody I was playing with, uh, one of my teams, uh, Saturday teams that I was playing for, so I was playing for Pershaw Town at the time. And one of the guys, 
has was a futsal player. He'd played at uni and, and he was like, Chris, the way you play football, you'd enjoy futsal and you you could be do well at it. So I, and I'd always thought about playing it. I just never never knew where to turn, never, never knew of the opportunity. And and all of a sudden, yeah, they, a couple of places all of it, he connected me to a club. We went together, then we went to another club together and we were playing uh, Saturday football and then futsal as well on a Sunday. And I ended up playing for a team called Birmingham Tigers who were competing in the kind of equivalent of the top tier. There was a few different tiers and they were sort of regional at the time. I was playing in a, it was a National Futsal League Midlands Premier. We, yeah, we were playing against some of the best teams in the country. And my first season, I think I was, I ended up being player of the season at Birmingham Tigers. And it was my first season playing futsal. And it was, it's just because of the way I think I was, I've been quite two-footed, technical player and futsal was sort of suits those that are all kind of well-rounded attacking and defending because it's quite a fast-paced game where all of a sudden you're attacking then all of a sudden you're defending and you need to be able to do everything in in equal parts almost and because of the way I played on on a Saturday football I played in all sorts of different positions I'd played in I played at centre half I'd played as a a winger a centre mid I played as a centre forward so I'd kind of been all over the pitch and and then moving to futsal it it made a lot of sense so I was then combining football and futsal for that season and I had a really good football and futsal season I think I was one of my best 11 aside seasons and also futsal wise obviously player of the season so then the the opportunity showed itself and I could go to the next level of playing sort of for a national team it was a case of seeing the interest because I qualified for two nations I qualified for both Wales and England and Wales were really interested straight away and I wanted to pursue that and I wanted to play as high as I could so I was offered the chance to be involved in what the Wales set up straight at the end of that season after that this was about 2014 2015 so I went into some national team camps that summer did reasonably well I think we had three or four and then uh, unfortunately I had quite a bad injury I tore a hip flexor in the final camp and I was out for two or three months maybe a little bit longer took quite a while I thought I'd missed my chance because I had not heard anything from them and then I, I sort of came back after the injury at the end of the season I didn't play much futsal I just played played football so this was sort of 2015 2016 and then after that I kind of the end of the football season came I didn't think of any, anything of it I'd not played any futsal and all of a sudden out of a blue I got another email invite to say Chris do you want to come and you know we'll have another look this summer hopefully you're over your injury and that was it I was back back in with an opportunity camps through the summer and I think late August into September I was getting over injuries I was starting to get in better shape and better knee did well in the camps and got picked in 2016 October yeah end of October 2016 first ever national team call up first appearance playing Latvia Wales versus Latvia the velodrome in Newport we played it don't forget it I, I guess it's um, a bit of a moment where I remember feeling quite emotional in the lineup with the national anthem and obviously knowing what I'd been through to get there in terms of the challenges with type one and for for one moment in my life you can never beat it but that was one moment where I felt like I had beaten it oh that sounds amazing wow and talk me through so then what happened next you keep playing 
Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I, again, I had a couple of injuries. We worked out why there was some, there was an underlying issue. So I ended up, I played that game for Wales there. This is the end of 2016. I then played a couple more times. I think, no, once more that at the end of 2016, I played in the Home Nations in Wales. We won it for the first time. Uh, it was the first ever Home Nations tournament and Wales won it. But unfortunately, I broke my fifth metatarsal in the first game. So that was, that was tough to take. And that kept me out for almost a year, which sort of at the time and the age that I was, it was it was tough to swallow. And obviously having just got that taste of sort of being involved in the national team setup, I was like, I came late to it. You know, I was mid-20s by the time I got my first cap. So I was thinking, you don't get that long. You get a window in your life where you can maximise, if you like, physical capabilities. And these memories and these opportunities to play for the national team don't, they don't just, they don't get handed out. They're not, they're not easy to come by so I was gutted so I spent about 11 months out and then when you spend that much time out injured you're kind of you need the same amount of time to get back to where you were so we're talking like to get back to that level again I'm going from the end of 2016 to the end of 2018 to then get my next Wales cap my third one so there's a long window there of working you and working really really hard to get back because when you have a bad injury like that not you're being watched to see if you can get back to that level and I needed an operation as well on my foot to sort of set it right and I had to go out and prove it all over again that I was capable of of reaching the level if you like it so we got there but what really helped in that moment was and it's that two-year window there where a lot of other stuff happened I had a year there where I didn't play and with the time where I didn't play this is where I created the diabetes football community and that all came about because if you like I reached my summit what I thought I was going to achieve in my playing career I'd played part-time football I'd earned some money and I thought ah, oh, that's you know that's nice that's always something that I've played for some some decent club decentish standard of football and but then futsal came along I've had this opportunity to represent my national team I thought in that moment I'm probably never going to get any better than this and also nobody can take that away from me I'll always be a Wales futsal international and I'll, I'll have always represented my my nation and in that moment it was like Chris you could help people with this now you look at all of the difficulties you've faced with type one nobody knew about my story I'd kept my story of living with type one so hidden for 17 years I'd been living with it the national team manager when he picked me didn't know I had type 1 diabetes because I made a conscious decision that I didn't want people to know that I live with my condition I wanted to be judged on what I was capable of before people had something put in their mind that subconsciously could impact their decisions now it's a difficult one for us to talk about because we don't know what subconscious bias and the level of subconscious bias that lives in certain people so I, because of the hidden nature of type 1 diabetes, I have a choice about whether I give someone that opportunity to present their subconscious bias in their, their decision-making process. And because of that, I'd hidden it for such a long time because I was I needed to get to what I wanted to do. When I'd represented Wales, I all of a sudden said, 
it's enough, man. You've probably hidden it for long enough. You won't get better than this, probably. You're 25, 26. You're probably not going to get any greater accolade. You've played some part-time football. You're not going to be a professional footballer. You've now represented your nation in the small-sided version of football, futsal. Great game in its own right. You now should say something because even if people present that subconscious bias and they don't pick you anymore, your story of living with type 1 and getting to this level in sport should be shared and it can help others that was what was in my head so that's where the end of 2016 when I had the injury and start of 2017 that's where it all start it stems from that moment it really comes from the fact that I was done with hiding and it probably needed to get it out as well as a I'd probably some of my challenges with mental health as well, the weight I was carrying around with me, I bit, it had to come. It came out in sort of 2017. And the first big thing was that I went on Daphne. Now, the, I'd 17 years, I'd not done Daphne. And that, if that doesn't suggest hiding and, you know, trying to not be in certain places and not embrace it and not do the best things for yourself all the time, I don't know what does. So for me, it was Daphne, which gave me the idea of peer support being in a room full of people with type one first time i've ever done that different people different walks of life it was game changing and then at that same time i was sort of looking at how i could share my story and looking at where there were other individuals that were in sport and type one and and i was trying to connect with them as well i was just trying to understand what good could i now do and daphne gave me that idea and then twitter and being on the gb doc if you like on twitter and seeing how that all came about and how that worked was something I was learning and then 26th of February 2017 I took the plunge and there's a there's a great picture of the account probably about I don't know one two weeks after I kicked it off I've got it on my phone I should reshare it but it's um there's a I don't know 50 followers on it or something like that and that was the diabetes that was it was called diabetes football right at the start and then very quickly I kind of was using some of my business brain I'd worked in a commercial business for sort of four or five years in different roles as like I worked in buying and trading in analytics and kind of got this sense of branding and all of a sudden I sort of with help with one of the directors at now at the diabetes football community uh, Jim we put together a, a brand and an image and a logo and yeah the diabetes football community was born and it was born from those difficulties it was an intervention it was an intervention that came as a result of studying and looking at what was going on in the community it was an intervention that couldn't have come until I felt I had to share it you know I, I was ready to share and also where I felt society couldn't judge me anymore and actually I was giving up the fact that I was biased if people were going to judge me I, I'd kind of accepted it I kind of shrugged it off at that point because I'd scaled what was important to me and I'd got that opportunity to represent my country and it helped me shift what was 17 years of keeping it very very hidden life changed then as a result I looked after myself better I got a hold of technology and my hba1c's are the best they'd ever been <laughs> these are these are no there's no coincidence in the fact that i just probably needed to seek out support earlier in life i just needed the help to get me over that line and i, I didn't realize i needed it and sport maybe the culture of sport and uh, being a male and the show no weakness culture within it has had an impact on that but then also sport was the thing that changed in the end for me with opportunity but obviously I'd, i worked <laughs> i worked so hard to get that opportunity that it's never catch 22 on it but all of it came about the diabetes football community came through injury i had 
something else to focus on because I was injured for for that long and and yeah now it now it is what it is it sounds like you were able to do that self-talk weren't you and sort of reflect and maybe think about your life and why are you pursuing certain things that's so interesting that you kept hidden that I was going to ask you like how, how did the clubs take it with your type one but it sounds like they didn't know <laughs> And what happened after? Was there any, did you hear any bias? Was there anything from that which is interesting to hear? Well, I think one thing that I, I did learn is that there was, I think I'd felt bias growing up as a teen. You know, I felt comments and I think that's what probably led it down that path. You know, you heard, hear children probably being a bit unkind with their comments about type one. I think that's what I'd, I'd learned that behavior to keep it hidden. And actually when I opened up to talk about it as an adult, people barely batted an eyelid really, but nobody had helped me challenge that thinking as a young person into an adult. Nobody had helped me. And this is why I'd, you know, I mentioned earlier about the importance of psychological support now in clinics, because if I'd have had access to that psychologist growing up, they would have helped me challenge that thinking. And we wouldn't have got to a place where at 25, 26, I'm still hiding it because I think people have got bias about my condition because I'd learned it as a child that people did. People didn't make comments and say nasty things bullying it's a bit I don't know if it's quite as bad as that but you know to just when they see something to make a snide remark or a joke and they don't really understand the weight of it but the weight of it was on me and my behavior and then my choices afterwards and the kit the way that you keep it hidden so I think it was it had a big influence on me teenager young adult period of my life that then influenced things that were as I became an adult which I wish I could have shaken earlier with football and futsal you kind of in a roundabout way it's kind of helped it's helped me and hindered me all at the same time I think there's a culture within sport which makes you feel elitist you know you're hunting down elitism you're you can't show that you're not bulletproof because it's sport and if you're striving to be really good at sport you're kind of hunting down being bulletproof or in your mind that's kind of like the the thing that keeps you going but that also then closes you off to wanting to share something about a condition which then in reality when I did share it I actually got better I probably played my best stuff in years because I'd probably lifted the weight and there's I don't think that's a coincidence either I just I wish I'd had the the ability to share it earlier but I think if when people listen to this they'll probably understand why I didn't share it earlier as well I totally get it and I, I totally agree with you I think when I worked in type one adults transition I would always be like get in there right now with the psychologist because when you're an adult it's really hard and I think I personally now also think it should just be in the school curriculum we need to be taught how to deal with challenges how to deal be resilient all this stuff because as you say children sometimes are just so truthfully honest and it's just the curious aren't they something slightly different you're curious but that can have an impact on you doesn't it at that young age but if you've got the opportunity to talk about that so it sounds like that Daphne was a really nice open space for you to comfortably talk about that isn't it with those peers Um, and do you think that's what's happening now with the foot so that you're able to talk about your story and then get others to talk about theirs and it gives them a safe space is that what you think people are finding from it that peer support is so important I think exactly so you know my story plays like that and I get to a point where I know I've got to share my story to encourage others to share theirs I I knew that I would have to open up talk about it because I wanted people to come together that probably were like me I was hunting down connection with others in football I 
thought we could help each other and I knew I would have to open myself up more to begin with to get others to come on that journey and it played out like that really is that for the start I knew I'd have to write plenty of blogs I knew I'd have to really showcase and talk about my life my experiences and talk about futsal talk about football talk about the different places I'd been and played and how I managed and things like that but it was all in in really bringing others on that journey so that one day which wasn't that far you know probably two or three years in it would flip round and now I don't really share that much at all because I knew that eventually everybody else would the reason it's not I was like oh I didn't name anything after me I didn't I didn't put anything about you know I didn't create my own diabetes space I wanted to create a, a group diabetes space and that's why it's the diabetes football community because it's always and always will be far bigger than any individual that this space can feel peer support isn't isn't one person's experience it's like all of our experiences then we're all sharing them and they're all valid in their own right in their different directions we're learning from each other so that's why it's the diabetes football community that's why it's tdfc because it was it was i knew it'd be a bit more of me to kick things off but i knew that eventually we would have a lot of people involved that then would share their experiences and we'd have podcasts telling stories we've got blogs telling stories we've got videos telling stories we've got what WhatsApp groups with stories being shared in every single day and questions being asked. That idea of peer support, which has helped so many people in these groups in ways that I think it should have, which I was trying to think of the right way of putting it, it should be given far more weight in treatment and healthcare pathways than it is currently given because I have seen people change their entire way of management that's come via our groups if you like rather than through their healthcare professionals and that cut through with someone came as a result of them seeing themselves in somebody else seeing what they do in their life connect with somebody who was like-minded and that didn't occur and it's it's not diminishing anyone's roles or anyone's uh, anybody in the healthcare profession because there's so many amazing people doing such great jobs it's not diminishing anybody's role in healthcare but what it is saying is that it needs greater weight for peer support because it has helped people that maybe healthcare professionals struggled or were finding difficult to help we've captured them we've helped them at the moment it's not sort of included on treatment pathways and I think peer support as a tool and as a mechanism for healthcare outcomes should really have an opportunity to be seen in that pathway for me it has to be I think the way I've seen it the way I've seen it develop we probably need to do more research on peer support we probably need to demonstrate and evidence its impact on people more than we have to really get buy-in because I understand research is important for pushing things like that one of the main reasons I wrote my my recent book chapter was because I knew to push this idea of peer support forward you need to be utilizing as much and creating as much evidence as you can in different formats for different people to see to ensure that we can we can drive that that idea forward yeah peer support's just been ma- massive for me individually but also in helping such a, a wide population that's not just the diabetes football community either it's it's, it's bigger than that as we know gb dark and d dark and across the globe there's just so many great advocates and great people connecting through peer support that's amazing and the fact that like you say you've talked about it different levels isn't it it's quite therapeutic I would say <laughs> I bet after hiding it for so long I bet yeah. you're just finding it so good I mean I really like this idea 
of bringing it into the treatment pathway, I think you're right. There is something there, isn't it? I know I used to work 10, 15 years ago on the final injury ward for people from like armies and we used to push them into sport. Like that was the number one pathway because actually to give them hope that they can do stuff and become part of an Olympic team, you know, it just seemed to be part of that healing process where they can meet others. And I totally also get what you're saying with healthcare professionals. Like we're never going to, if you don't have tech one, never going to know what you're going through on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, as much as we work it and live it and breathe it, it's not the same as living with it. And that's why I always encourage everyone I know, like I do quite a lot with the different charity, really push healthcare professionals to, to do that as well. I think it's a huge part of learning to see what it looks like day to day. I don't know if that's what's led you to JDRF as well. Like, but tell me a bit more about that community, because it sounds like you're also just keeping on building it. You've got your book, you've got your blogs, you've got the podcast, you've got the actual community. And now you also do that for work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So kind of, I think for me, I was looking at the diabetes football community, its impact, its sport focused, its interest led, which is a an interesting part only in itself is that you drive people together through their interests first, not necessarily just because they live with type 1 diabetes. I think you get greater connection and, and maybe greater cut through with people because they've got more in common rather than it just being that the fact they live with type 1. I think that's what's made that community special and really help. And that's kind of leads a lot of my thought process about peer support, but it also leads a lot of the thought processes around what I do at JDRF as well, is trying to find key themes, which I know people really want to support or, or get help with in, in the community. I wanted to I had the opportunity to move into JDRF just under a year ago now. And it was really a period of time of looking at what I wanted to do and, and coming out of university myself, finishing my master's pathway and finishing the, the book chapter and, and the, the academic foundations, if you like, for what the diabetes football community stood for. Uh, the role came up and I applied and it felt like a great fit for me to try and broaden the stuff that I was doing through, through the diabetes football community to a wider audience, to a bigger part the community to really try and utilize what JDRF stands for and if you like the brand of JDRF to try and continue to push for the best for people with type 1 lived experience bringing that through working really hard in our community engagement team to to work with other organizations and work with other uh, individuals to try and ensure that every single day at JDRF we're trying to improve the lives of those living with type 1 whether that's through the the work that we do in research around prevention the cure and then daily treatments and technologies research into them or whether it's with our events that i help to deliver community events across the united kingdom or or the information and the content that we put out there or even the projects that we're involved in shaping and influencing on behalf of the community using that lived experience and the patient voice to really ensure that the things that happen for people with type 1 are really i hope representative of their views and of the people so it's been a big part of why i wanted to get involved is that i felt I could do things more broadly and have I hoped a bigger influence yeah so far it's been it's been really exciting it's been a really busy year we've done a lot of cool stuff been involved in some great projects and some great conversations some amazing events and really pleased really pleased with what's going on and I'm hoping as things develop we'll continue to to positively support people with type 1 by the work that I do and I can have an impact on every day and the charity always endeavour to do as well so 
in in short, in summary, I think JDRF's been a great great step for me to to continually, I think, develop as an individual as well. And I hope we're still relatively young. There's still lots and lots I want to accomplish and do and push. But I'm kind of evolving with time and with the different projects and things that I've been involved in in the last few years and the career in sport maybe just starting to unfortunately go the other way as the, the age starts to go that the opposite way kind of they tie in together so got to think about the future and, and where it goes it's been a, it's been an exciting what is almost 12 months at JDRF I mean your whole story so far is so fascinating so interesting and, and I think I could talk to you for hours about it <laughs> uh, but let, tell me about this book and what's it called and how did that come about and maybe where can people sort of follow you hear you because I think your platform and your voice that you're using for positivity and sharing I think it's amazing and I think this community of like sports exercise has been growing I think yeah tell me the chapter where can we find you yeah so the the book chapter is in a is in a book called critical issues in football focused on the diabetes football community so the research the the chapter focused on the research that I did from my master's program about the foundations of the diabetes football community talks about peer support stigma and overcoming it and temporary identity and disability diabetes identity so there's some some really hopefully interesting subjects which not always in the forefront of the conversation around improving outcomes in diabetes so yeah the the book chapters out there pretty easy to find and good in google as well which is great and then in terms of platforms and stuff that's got going on so the the diabetes football community easy one to find so it's www.thediabetesfootballcommunity.com is the website you can find the podcast lives on there as well it's called the diabetes dugout podcast you can see all the the links to the to the interviews that we've done on there you can also search for the diabetes dugout on spotify and apple podcasts uh, we haven't done one for a little while but there's loads of stuff it's been it's quite recent last year or two so there's some good stuff in there hopefully to listen back to and then my own social media is chris brighty one so that's on twitter and instagram i use those probably my most frequent platforms that i talk about diabetes on and also sport really in general i mean i'm on linkedin as well just again search chris bright and you'll hopefully you'll find me on there with my job title at jdrf community partnerships and events lead so happy to always chat and happy to talk over especially when it's involved with sport and i think you're right Nuzrat, that the the platform to talk about sport is growing the interest in it is growing and it's because the conversation has shifted for people with type 1 you look at where I started in 1999 wouldn't have been easy for people with type 1 to be active then so 20 years difference 20 years of life experiences improving and what we're capable of improving and encouraged by healthcare professionals. So I think that's why we're seeing the numbers of interest really grow as well, because we're understanding that people with type 1 can be active and can do it really well as well and enjoy it and navigate the challenges of it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Really excited. It should be really good. It's been a really interesting chat and I'm hoping people find it really useful. So that's us done for today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you again in the next episode. Remember, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review, subscribe for upcoming content and follow us on social media at BDA underscore SEN Diabetes.